This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. On today's show, we've got myself, Steve English, and David Emmett. And David, it's Superbike David Emmett this week. It is. It is S-B-K-D-E. That's sort of some mouthful. That's almost as big of a mouthful as the Paddock Pass podcast, Paddock Notes. But uh, David, it's obviously it's great to have you at a World SBK round. And uh, what's what's your feelings on it? Obviously, you've come to a few rounds over the years, but it's been a gap of a couple of years. I think Mizano a couple of years ago was the last time you were at one. Yeah, pr- yes, probably. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think Mizano two years ago. Um, uh, it has been a while. Uh, also, I mean, it's been a while for me to be back in a paddock, actually, just because I haven't been uh, at a race. Well. I've been to Assen twice or two, three times in the intervening period, but all just for presentations. Never been back for a proper race event. This is the first time I've been back for a uh, a, a racing event on a race weekend, and it's actually really enjoyable. And I, the, the Superbike Paddock is a really, really nice place to be as well. It's just it's much more friendly. It's more welcoming. It's more informative. You you learn a lot more. There's not lots of factories trying to hide the fact that somebody has changed their seat by three millimeters yeah we've got a lot of good content from this from this weekend to come over the next few weeks on the show obviously we sat down for an interview with jonathan ray and alex lowes for the rental street sessions interviews we've also got an interview with paul denning the paddy yamaha team manager at the end of this show as well and uh there's been an awful lot of news in and around the paddock. Garrett Gerloff's announced his contract extension. That's obviously potentially taking a name off the list for a MotoGP seat next year. Top Rack, of course, did that the previous round. We've had lots of other news up and down the paddock. You've had the chance to bump into a lot of old friends. Kervin Boss, of course, a former colleague on Dutch Eurosport for you. He's a team manager now at Tankade. You also bumped into Ian Wheeler. Lots of people here that have been in the MotoGP paddock. And I tell you what, the change of pace into this paddock isn't too bad. Yeah, exactly. It's a much more relaxed atmosphere. It's also, it, it's, um, you feel that there is time to sit down and think in the Superbike paddock, which you just don't get with MotoGP. There's too much going on. It used to be, um, and I think this is perhaps something which could happen here as well. MotoGP used to be simple. It used to be five riders. You used to have to go and see. Uh, used to go and talk to. Um, uh, you might have to do one or two extra just for fun. Uh, the trouble is now, uh, any Sunday, any given Sunday, 12, 14 riders could could win. Here, it used to be, well, you know, Jonathan Ray, you know, Jonathan Ray's going to win. Not any longer. Jonathan Ray is really, really having to work hard at it. We're seeing Top Rack, uh, Razgat Lioglu leading the championship and looking proper. Any given Sunday, any given Saturday or Sunday, Dave. Yeah, you're exactly. in the Superbike paddock now, mate. That's right. Obviously, enough as well, Dave, you, you, you always keep a keen eye on the Superbike paddock anyway, but it's nice to look at it as a fan more than a journalist. Yeah. And that's been one of the big things you've been able to do over the last few years. Obviously, since I moved into the paddock, I think there's been a few of the people in our group have taken more of an interest in Superbike, and that's great because they've been able to see that, you know what, the riders are good, the bikes are fast, we're still at great racetracks. And now we've got a real competitive balance with the rules where, you know, on any given weekend, you're going to have the Yamaha, the Kawasaki or the Ducati with a slight edge. BMW are coming strong. Honda's obviously had some good results at times over the last two years. They've been a bit off the form so far this season, but they're not that far off, especially whenever you consider just how close the championship is right now. Yeah, exactly. That was one of the things that Paul Denning was saying to me, uh, that uh, the the championship is so much closer. The technical rules are really, really good. Uh, Any given Sunday, uh, or well, any given 
Saturday, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, um, anyone could win. You know, there, there are a lot of riders who could win. There's a lot of riders who could end up on the podium um, because the racing is uh, it's been made com uh, afforded affordably competitive which is a very very difficult trick to do um but it's still just you know it is much better and there are different different bikes for different tracks um i spoke very briefly very briefly to michael van der mark he was quite positive about the, the this coming weekend because the where the bmw seems to struggle is uh, in hard braking there's only really one hard braking spot here um so yeah it, and it's his home race he said there's something special about your home race he couldn't even explain what it was but it is something special uh, so yeah i think uh, a lot of reason to be watching i'm going to give a bit of a shout out to lana fellows for this as well because when she was working in world sbk one of the big things she always wanted to get into all of the dutch press releases was there's magic in the air <laughs> And uh, when Mikey's out on track here, he lives up to his billing. Yeah, oh, 100%. Yeah, uh, uh, 100%. On every bike he's been on, he's been a little bit special around here. And um, yeah, if the, the, the BMW seems to be working a little bit better. Uh, it seems to be a little bit uh, more competitive. It, like I said, we, no real concern about the where the bike really struggles, the, the bike's weak points. Um, they've made a step uh, and sort of add that in with uh, Magic Michael. And yeah, you could have something interesting going on this weekend. I'm going to ask you something, David. As a fan, obviously in the news this week, Silverstone for the British Grand Prix had the F1 sprint race. 17 laps at Silverstone. They're going to do it at Monza and probably Interlagos as well later in the season. They're changing their formula to try and basically produce something that's a bit more exciting. Now, I'm saying this as a diehard F1 fan. I struggle to watch F1 races over the last few years because it's gotten too stretched out. Superbikes obviously brought in the Tiso Superpole race, a 10-lap race. Same, same number of laps no matter what track we go to, and it's just a flat-out blast. I want to know your thoughts on that race and the sprint race concept as a whole. What's what do you think of them? Uh, I think it's interesting. It's certainly um, because I think at one point we were also setting the grid based on the results of the previous uh, of race one. Um, this I think is much better. It's much better way of saying it, and it also throws uh, throws up a few surprises, um, especially when the weather is not completely dependable. Uh, all sorts of things can happen. Um, I think it also seems to have been quite good for Pirelli because Pirelli brought this SCX time, which was supposed to just be for a sprint uh, uh, for a sprint race. But the thing is, you know, it's lasting twenty three laps. It's like it's la it's lasting full race distance, which is. Um, I suspect that it's something that, that Pirelli have learned from their uh, from this sprint race format. Uh, they've been able to develop a a, a tire with a lot more grip and uh, a lot more durability. Yeah, for anyone looking for information on that tire as well, after the Aragon round, I did an interview on the podcast with Giorgio Barbier from Pirelli talking about the developments they've made. Obviously, the X tire, the super soft compound tire, the softest tire Pirelli have, like you said, they've developed for the Super Pole race it's ended up being a race tire and it's ended up being really popular across the board. BSB using it a lot now, the Spanish Championship using it a lot, the Italian Championship using it, obviously in World SBK, it's become the tire you almost have to have. Yeah, and also someone mentioned today to me that the uh, rationale for having a qualifying tire is going away with this SEX tire because it's so much better. Uh, and also having a, uh, using the SEX tire instead of a qualifying tire would also maybe mean that we don't run into so many problems with um, 
exceeding track limits and that sort of thing. Um, it means that you can back off for a couple of laps and then push again for another couple of laps. Whereas the, the qualifying tire is, you know, it is uh, uh, it lasts for about ten meters short of full rate, uh, full lap distance because that's exactly what it's got to do. And if you mess up on your on your qualifying lap, if you exceed track limits or whatever, uh, that's it. You've blown it. it. It means you have to come in and, and, and swap tires. Whereas if you're using the SEX, we can do what you do in MotoGP, which is you stick the soft on, you go out and you push. Don't quite make it. Okay, you've got another lap you can you can try and push, or maybe you can back off, let the car the the tire cool down, and push again. And it might be a, a better solution than having these tires, which you know you're throwing away from uh, for, for, uh, after a single lap. It's always interesting to have to come into a new paddock, a paddock where you don't really have ties, and you're able to just chat to people you're able just to sort of pick out the different bits and pieces we were able to sit down with both kawasaki riders today jonathan ray and alex those they're going to be interviews that we're going to use on the podcast we're going to have them out on patreon as well though earlier just so that our patreon supporters are able to get those interviews but over the next couple of weeks we're going to play them into the podcast as well what was your big takeaway from talking to the two boys it, it, different things i mean uh, for a start i think how motivated still Jonathan Ray is, you know, he still has that ambition, which, you know, he's got nothing, he's got really nothing left to prove, but he's still just as hungry as ever. Um, we did ask him about uh, going to uh, going to MotoGP, but he was, uh, he sort of beat around, beat around the bush a little bit, well, wouldn't really be drawn on it. We'll have to wait and see where, whether that happens. Uh, Alex Lowe's, I think, was also very, I, I mean, the, what I like about it, doing interviews in the in the superbike paddock, people are more open, they're more honest. They don't give you the politically correct answer. They don't give you the answer which has been uh, sort of whispered into their ears by the by the press officer. Alex Lowe says, "You know, I don't deserve to be in MotoGP yet because I haven't I haven't won enough races. The only way you uh, you win is you win races and you win championships and you actually earn it. So yeah, it's going to be it's going to be interesting. We talked a lot about the package as well, and they talked a lot about um, you know having the right package and Jonathan." saying you know the, the way that he's working with uh, crew chief Pereira with Gimeroda and and his approach to the championship and that was um uh, that was it was illuminating it wasn't it was exactly what you would expect you know like do it one bit at a time but the, always the way which riders frame it always makes it that much more interesting you see how they think and the way the way they think and, and approach the championship i always find it interesting that obviously jonathan ray signed for kawasaki it was 2015 he'd come from the tankara honda squad he jumped onto the bike that had been developed around tom sykes's style instantly was quick and instantly saw how much better the Kawasaki package was compared to everything else on the grid at that stage. Alex has obviously jumped onto the Kawasaki last year. The grid's an awful lot closer now, but it's interesting whenever you you hear about from people inside Kawasaki about how much their package hasn't moved on over the last few years. And then Alex is obviously able to compare that to his time, whether it's in BSB or on a Crescent Suzuki or on a Yamaha and able to see like, I'll tell you what, I can probably understand now why I wasn't able to win an awful lot of races early in my career because that Kawasaki package, and you said it there, there, David, the package is what matters. It's the people, it's the bike, it's the team, it's the organization. And that team runs an absolute crack outfit. And I think that, you know, I've said it already on the podcast in recent shows, the Kawasaki isn't the best bike on the grid anymore. The Yamaha, for me, is the best all-round package. Kawasaki, KRT are still going to find ways to win because they've got the right people. They've got Jonathan Ray, they've got Pararibe, they've got the ability to be able to grind out results week in, week out. Yeah, uh, something which I found interesting, which um, 
uh, Paul Denning said was that the the strength of Toprak Rosgat Lioglu was that um, he or why he was doing so much better this year was you know he'd made a step at sort of mentally in his mind um, he'd made a step. Um, also with the team, with the package, they'd improved the bike a little bit. The bike isn't the slowest, you know, it isn't dog slow anymore. It has some speed to it. It's still not fast, but it's, you know, it, it's fast enough. A bit like the M1 in, um, uh, in MotoGP. Um, yeah, the bike's not doing too bad either. Yeah, but the, the uh, again, the package, the package, what is it's about, you know, the communication between rider and crew chief, between crew chief and, and engineer uh, uh, about everyone understanding when the rider says the bike is doing this, how to fix it, all these sort of things. Well, let's look at that package then, Dave, because obviously we asked Jonathan Ray about the links that he's had to go into Petronas Yamaha, and that was a big story, and it came from very well-placed people. Like, at the end of the day, it was Matt Burt and MCN, and Matt's very rarely wrong. So Jonathan Ray is a name that has been talked about within Petronas Yamaha. You can take that for granted. But Johnny didn't sound like a man now, three weeks later, that feels that that's going to be something that's really going to be pursued. No, uh, no. Uh, uh, again, it's about the package. It's about being put, uh, getting the right bike. It would they would mean being on a competitive bike. It would also mean having at least a two year contract because it always takes you a year to get used to it. Also, it would mean for Jonathan Ray, I think, a change of lifestyle. Uh, not thirteen or fourteen rounds, twenty two rounds. Uh, you're away a lot. He talks a lot about his uh, boy Jake, who's seven, I think, racing motor across playing football all these sort of things um it would mean it would be very very different when you are when you're in MotoGP. gp there's a lot more there's a lot more pressure but you you're just away a lot more there's a lot less free time there's a lot less time that you have for uh, for your family and it's clear that jonathan ray is still incredibly ambitious but is he still is he ambitious enough do you know is he, does he feel that he could realize the ambitions which he has in moto gp or will he stay and try and defend his his uh, superbike yeah and i think one of the things for me that's most interesting about it is that there's a lot of riders being linked to that seat and a lot of riders turning it down garrett gurloff has confirmed that he's staying with yamaha next year 2022 he's going to stay in world sbk with yamaha but there is a clause in that contract to say that he can leave if the patronus seat isn't filled and he's offered it but it shows that there's another rider there that doesn't quite want to make that jump. Yeah, I, uh, again, I think it's a question of having the right package, of having everything in place. And nobody, again, the problem is with very competitive championships is where that it comes down to details. It comes down to having the right crew chief in place. It comes down to having the right uh, uh, bike, a competitive enough bike. It also comes down to testing. I mean, one of the things, uh, Garrett Gerloff came to Aston, a track he'd never ridden at. Um, we had some sketchy weather uh, on a bike that he'd only ever done sort of one wet, one wet session on um, or one wet day on at Valencia. Uh, and Aston is also not a track you learn in an afternoon. It's just not a question of knowing where the corners are. There's a few places where you you can make a big difference if you can carry some speed, if you can, you know, sort of uh, uh, take your courage in your hand and, and hold the throttle open. Uh, and so to actually come, when you see how close 
Garrett Gerloff was at the end in terms of his lap times, less than a second off. If he'd have had, you know, a full winter's testing, then maybe things would have been uh, different. If he'd had, if this had been his second week on, on the bike, maybe he would have been a lot closer. So yeah, I think, or if it had been at a track which he'd already uh, ridden at, that would have been a, a, a you know one less thing. So it, I, I, the impression I get is that Gerloff. Um, is open to going to going to MotoGP, but you know the, a few things have to fall into place. Yeah, I think he's very open to going to MotoGP. Top Rack clearly isn't. Yeah. Top Rack likes it here. He likes it in Superbikes. He likes the relaxed pa paddock. He likes the atmosphere. I think one of the big things is he likes not having too much engagements. At the end of the day, in this paddock, he's got a handful of journalists that he has to deal with. He's able to build a good relationship with them. He's able to trust them. He's able to have a bit of fun here. And he's able to go home. It's 13 rounds. It's not too bad. You go to MotoGP and there's 100 journalists you have to deal with. There's 20 races, 22 races maybe in the next few years. There's tests. There's promo events. There's all these things that he doesn't have to deal with right now. Yeah, the other thing is he's incredibly ambitious. This was one thing which uh, Paul Dunning was saying. He's just incredibly ambitious. He wants to win. Like he really wants to win races. He wants to be world. He wants to be world superbike champion. Um, uh, and I think he wants to go to world superbikes once he's got a champion. Or from well, he wants to go to MotoGP once he's got a, a, a superbike title under. His, he's not going to go if he hasn't won a championship. He feels he's got to earn it. I think it's really interesting with Top Rack that he's a real polar opposite of Jonathan Ray. Johnny will always say like, "Oh no, I'm I'm happy with what I've achieved." And he should be happy with what he's achieved. He's done more than anyone else in World Superbikes ever. But there's always that little bit of a chip, that little itch that he never scratched, the chance to get a real go at MotoGP. Obviously, he did two races as a replacement rider back in 2012. Showed well. 2011, sorry, showed well. But never really got the opportunity to show exactly what he could do. And that's something that's always left that little bit of a mark on him. Any champion's got a big ego. Any champion that's a serial champion has to have that massive chip on their shoulder about something. And for Johnny, he has to have that chip about MotoGP. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing is, in MotoGP, what you see, uh, there is a lot of snobbery and prejudice in the GP paddock about the level of, uh, of World Superbike riders. Uh, but if you look at when Superbike riders have come into the MotoGP, uh, into, or when MotoGP riders have come into the Superbike paddock, they haven't dominated. I mean, you know, uh, sure, Alvaro Bautista had uh, half of a spectacular season. Uh, but since then... He's just not impressed. Scott Ridding is doing well, um, but he's still, he's not coming in and just dominating uh, uh, Jonathan Ray. Um, you know, the Tito Rabat is certainly not making a, a, a real impression. Um, he was probably doing better in, in MotoGP than he was in uh, in World Superbike, even though it's his, his first season. So yeah, there's a, it's, the, the level is much closer than than the people in the Grand Prix paddock like to think. Yeah, and I think for someone like Tito, he showed whenever he came back as a replacement rider at the start of the year in MotoGP, he was actually still a pretty decent MotoGP rider. You know, it's tough to come in here. You go to a bike that's much softer. MotoGP bike is so stiff that it's a big transition to it. Your Peretti tires are very different to the Michelin tires, carbon brakes, back to steel brakes, much more advanced electronics in World SBK compared to MotoGP, there's an awful lot to deal with. And I think it can be undersold at times. And I think probably one of the reasons for that is that for a long time, we had dominant manufacturers. We had Ducati dominating. We had Aprilia dominating. We had Kawasaki dominating. Now we have it where everyone's an awful lot closer. And that means that it, 
the rider has to make the difference. And it's a lot easier to make the difference when you've got 10 years experience on Pirelli tires or 10 years in a superbike. Well, yeah, again, it comes back to the details. When everything is close, it comes down to the details. And uh, that's when experience really starts to count. You know, when you're looking for those, when you're looking for, uh, you know, half a second, in a way, easier to find than the final sort of tenth or hundredth uh, of a second. That's when you really have to work on the on the last little bits and pieces, putting everything together. Uh, and where the, the the closer the field is, the more important those uh, details and that experience. Obviously enough, David, we've talked a bit about the Petronas Yamaha seat there. What's your thoughts on who's going to end up on that bike? I, I, I genuinely, genuinely have absolutely no idea. It is such a difficult, um, uh, it, it's such a difficult seat to fill because there are no obvious candidates. If you look in Grand Prix, uh, uh, you know, if you look in Moto Two beyond um, the two riders who are going to go up anyway, I mean, we know that Remy Gardner is is going to go to Tech Three. Uh, we suspect that Ralph Fernandez is also going to go to Tech Three. Um, I think we do more than suspect that at this <laughs> stage. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, that leaves uh, that takes the two candidates who are most obviously qualified to make the step to Moto to Moto uh, GP. Um, Sam Lowe's. Why would Sam Lowe's leave Moto Two to go to Moto GP? I mean, he can win a championship in uh, in Moto Two. He start he will start next year as the as the uh, favourite to be champion. Um, if he goes to MotoGP, he would be on a much better package than uh, when he went with the Aprilia. Uh, but even then, whoever gets on the bike is going to, um, you know, their, your objective then becomes sort of uh, trying to break into the top eight. Uh, and that can be frustrating if you haven't won a championship or um, if you, yeah, at a certain point in your career. I think if Sam Lowe's were to end up as as Moto Two Championship this year, which I think is uh, would be very difficult this year, then maybe he would think, okay, yeah, maybe I could. But you know, he's in a good situation. He's got a really good crew chief. He's got a really good group around him. He's on competitive uh, equipment. He's in a team who wants to win a championship. Who are going to give him everything that they can to win a championship. Um, he doesn't have a great deal to gain from going to, to MotoGP. Uh, then look past him, Marco Bezecchi. Bezecchi is making a habit of finishing fourth, which is adequate, but not really enough. There's not really anyone who really stands out and you say, I mean, beyond, you know, Remy Gardner and Raul Fernandez, there's no one standing out who says, that guy needs to be, that rider needs to be on a MotoGP bike. Yeah, because with Bezecchi, He's been that step behind and not just in terms of finishing fourth. He's been a step behind in terms of his pace, his speed all the way through the season. He's done a really good job. He sits well in the championship, but he hasn't quite kicked on to where everyone expected him to be. But he's definitely one of those riders. You wouldn't be surprised if he does end up on a MotoGP bike next year because the VR46 Academy, he's young enough. You know, at the end of the day, he's 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 a good rider to put onto any bike right now. And whether that's going to be onto the VR46 bike on the Ducati or whether it's going to be on to Petronas Yamaha or whatever he's going to have an opportunity to move up next year so that's more than likely three riders moving up from Moto2 next year but still there's going to be a seat to fill at Petronas and for for the life of me whenever you talk to anyone in, in my paddock any rider about it all that they say is 
how can there be a factory Yamaha seat that nobody wants? It, it's strange. I mean, like Top Rack, obviously, um, uh, would have been on that bike, should have been on that bike. Um, but he wants to win a he wants to win a World Superbike champion championship, and you can't really you can't really blame him. Um, maybe we do see Garrett Girl off on it if um, if they put. Because they may end up looking for um, needing needing someone on that uh, on that bike, and therefore be willing to invest the money into or invest the resources into putting the right package together. Cameron Bobby is also a guy with an awful lot of experience on big bikes. He's got a year under his belt in Grand Prix. He obviously hasn't really been linked too much with that seat, but considering that there's been a lot a big push for getting an American on the grid, whether it's Gerloff, Joe Roberts. Bobier fits the bill as a guy with a ton of superbike experience, ton of success as well in America. Gerloff's been able to come in and show the level of Moto America already. And Bobier has actually done a good job during the races. I think it'd be a big surprise if he did move up to MotoGP, but considering the options that are there, you do get to the point where you have to look deeper than just either the results, the passport, or something. And Bobier was a favorite son of America. Of, of American Yamaha and there was certainly a lot of clauses in his contracts in the past to give him opportunities to go to world championships so it wouldn't be beyond the realms but I think it would be a big surprise for someone like that it would be a surprise maybe you would see Joe Roberts on it instead just because you know he's a younger American and Razan Rosali was um, uh, in the uh, interview which uh, they, they released as a press release earlier what was it uh, a couple of weeks ago Raslan basically said, you know, our objective is to take young riders and turn them into factory riders, um, which would not sit with well with Cameron Bobby, who I think he's 30, late 20s or, or maybe 30, um, would sit much better with uh, with Joe Roberts, would sit better with Garrett Gerloff, who's 25. Um, uh, so, yeah, there's there's that there's that aspect. But then, you know, people say things in, press, in interviews for press releases – which we don't know whether they really mean how you know how serious they are about it. Yeah, I think as well. Obviously, Gerloff has vaulted himself up to being that top American on the international stage, and rightly so because he's the one getting the results week in week out. He's obviously had a flawed season at times this year, but the potential's there. And whenever you talk to riders off the record in World SBK, they've all told me the same thing. They've said his talent level is massive. They said that he can he can ride anything. He could be a great MotoGP rider. Just needs to smooth out the edges. And obviously enough, that's going to be an opportunity that in all likelihood will come his way at some point. But it's going to be interesting to see what ends up happening for that seat. There was other news as well. Well, we have one thing about that seat. The other thing is because uh, it's for the 2022 season. Uh, everyone's contract is, un is up at the end of 2022. Um, so there's going to be a lot more choice available uh, then. Uh, that then becomes, uh, you know, a much more complicated situation where if you take that seat, you are gambling on doing well in one season, which is always very, very difficult with the risk of losing it uh, if someone decides to jump, if someone uh, decides that, um, uh, you know, life at Ducati or Honda or wherever or Suzuki or whatever is not, uh, it's not what they'd, uh, they'd hope for. They think they can do better on, uh, 
on a well-supported satellite Patronus team. Uh, so, yeah, the, it's a risk taking that seat, which is also, I think, why some riders are a little bit gun-shy. Life at Suzuki not quite going according to plan. I'm not sure which rider you'd be talking about for that one, Dave. But there was plenty of other news in MotoGP as well this week. Obviously, Danny Pedrosa coming back for a wild card in Austria. That's really surprised me because I never really got the idea that uh, Danny Pedrosa was interested in riding. Was never really um, he he. I mean, he loved racing. Um, he hated everything else except for racing. Um, very much in the Casey Stoner mold, he hated doing interviews, uh, hated all that media stuff. He's going to have to do media stuff with the wild card. I thought that would be a reason for him not to do it. But I think what KTM are a little bit worried about is the fact that he's losing a step. Um, as a test rider, you are, uh, you're never really pushing quite as hard or it's much harder to maintain that intensity of risk of pushing of you know really finding the ragged edge uh, and even though Pedrosa's feedback is outstanding sometimes they're going to need him to go faster this is one of the reasons why Michele Piero Ducati get Michele Piero to race uh, in the Italian championship uh, just to keep him racing to keep you know to keep to keep him as sharp as possible obviously as well David that's some one of the reasons where someone like Cal Crutchlow to replace Franco Morbidelli is going to come from because you don't want to go a year between riding MotoGP bikes. So being able to come in for the Austrian rounds, potentially Silverstone, means that he'll have plenty of miles under his belt before he has to actually get to doing his job, which is when we get to November and we get to do the tests at the end of the year. Yeah, I mean, he has been doing some private testing already. Um, um, but, uh, yeah, Franco Morbidelli is quite clearly focused on 2022. He's sort of like basically abandoned this season. That's why he's getting his ACL fixed. It's, it's a long, long recovery period. Um, uh, I think having Crutchlow on the bike for three races is also a very good idea because it gives him uh, um, the first time is always a bit of a culture shock. The the first time back on a race bike, the second time is okay. You've got the you, you've got a bit of a clue. Uh, obviously, uh, Franco Morbidelli's 2019 Yamaha M1 is not the motorbike you would choose to go racing at Austria with. Um, uh, but then them's the brakes. Uh, but then after that, Silverstone that bike is really good. It's uh, it, the, the bike is really good around there. It's Cal's home race. That has got to be, um, yeah, quite encouraging. You must be looking forward to that, and I think it would be it'd be good for MotoGP, be good for good, good for good for everyone. Yeah, and obviously, one of the things that wasn't so good for everyone was the news that the Thai Grand Prix was going to be cancelled. Uh, yes, uh, but the there were. I mean, I, I talked to a few people the, the, this the, the, this weekend about sort of all sorts of things, and it really how the end of the season is going to play out is really difficult. We're not sure about Sepang. Uh, at the moment, Sepang should happen. Um, uh, losing Thailand means we should have an extra race added in. Where that is, is difficult. Will we see another doubleheader at, um, uh, at Portimao, which would mean three races at Portimao, which would be a bit peculiar, but the alternative is to have a doubleheader at um, uh, at Valencia, which would also be uh, uh, tricky. Be less than desirable as well. It would be It would be less than desirable, yes, indeed. It's not It's not everyone's favourite, but it's, uh, it's a difficult situation. It's also difficult finding it, uh, finding replacements. Um, uh, again, we're seeing numbers rise in fact here 
what we saw was after they released the restriction, they relaxed the restrictions, the numbers of COVID cases shot up and it's actually dropping back down again quite steeply again. Vaccination program, people are taking a little bit, being a little bit more careful, uh, but also the vaccination program has been quite successful. Uh, that's making a big difference. But places like Thailand, Indonesia, um, uh, they're nowhere near as far with the, with, with the vaccination program and it becomes extremely difficult. Obviously, we're not going to uh, Australia for a similar reason that they that they are just trying to keep everything out so it's how the end of how the end of the season goes i really don't know yeah the ins and outs are always going to be a bit tricky got one last question for you Dave, before we move on uh dan Petrucci, obviously no seats left at ktm whenever we expect raul fernandez steps up to the motor gp class what's going to happen with Petrucci? because he's a rider that has said he doesn't want to come back to world superbikes but there are some offers on the table i believe one of them's from ducati and ducati could potentially be moving on from scott Redding. They've obviously been a bit disappointed at the results, the money they've spent. I've heard that Reading has been approached by some other manufacturers, BMW included. So it looks like maybe there could be a spot opening at Ducati that would make sense for someone like Petrucci. You also wonder whether Patronus might be having a, a, a sneaky phone call or two with um, with Petrucci's manager. Um, but it doesn't look like there is much interest in Petrucci in the in the MotoGP paddock. Um, I think Petrucci will actually do really, really well in World Superbikes. I think he'd be really good for the series as well. He's a fantastic personality. Um, the the loss of Petrucci is a loss for 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 the Grand Prix paddock because he is a, a genuinely inter interesting and delightful person. And I think he would actually add something here. I think he'd be very competitive as well. He wouldn't have faced the learning curve which other Grand Prix riders have, have faced. He knows a lot more about the paddock, about the way it works. He's raced the Pirellis. Um, obviously, the bike has moved on, uh, but yeah, I think I, I think it would be a great. Uh, I think it'd be a great opportunity. I really hope he does make it. I, for one, would be very disappointed if he came here. Why is that? Because suddenly I wouldn't be the biggest Simpsons fan in the paddock. <laughs> but I think as well, I think for Petrucci, I think it'd be it'd be excellent if he came here. I think, like you said, David, all, all those reasons could be great, and. He's a damn good rider. You know, he's a two-time Grand Prix winner, you know. And I think if you were Ducati, you actually have a comparison that's already being made. There's a reason he got the factory Ducati seat. There's a reason he got the better bike at Pramac as well. It's because he outperformed Scott Redding. Yes, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's uh, it, he has quite clearly demonstrated what he's capable of. Uh, obviously, Ducati are looking for someone to beat Jonathan Ray. Um, they keep coming up short. They've tried lots of things. That you know, it looked like they had it with Alvaro Bautista. Uh, they believe very strongly in the that the Panigale V4 is a is a competitive bike, and it is a it's an incredibly fast bike. It is comp competitive. Um, they believe it's competitive, but they can't get it to beat uh, Jonathan Ray yet. They're looking for the right rider. It's a, l a little bit similar in situation in in MotoGP, where they keep they're looking for the right person on that bike to actually make a difference. We're going to take a break on the Panic Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Rent All Street. And when we come back after the break, David sat down with Paul Denning. Renthal Street, Chain, and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment.
Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021. I'm here with Paul Denning of the Pata Yamaha World Superbike uh, team. Um, things are going well, I think it's safe to uh, safe to say at the moment. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're, as, as all the good sporting cliches run, we're treating every single race and every single event um, on a standalone basis and uh, just trying to maximise the potential every time the bike uh, leaves the pit box. Um, but so far, you know, that approach has uh, been mirrored by uh, certainly Top Rack, who um, has been uh, absolute kind of uh, uh, showpiece for consistency and um, since the start of the year. And uh, every time there's been a dry race, we've stuck it on the podium so far. So if we keep going like that, um, we have a good chance of uh, being somewhere close at the end of the season. But um it is going very well, but uh, only four rounds completed of hopefully 13 if the flyaways happen at the end. Um, and with World Superbike being three races every event, a lot of points to win and a lot of points to be hemorrhaged if things go bad. So um, uh, bike's taken a step, rider's taken a step. Uh, you know, uh, as you'd expect, things progress all the time and um, we've hopefully at least matched the progression of our competitors and... Uh, um, somewhere near somewhere near the front uh, every weekend the looking at the championship it, I mean like you say the, if the flyaways happen uh, we saw it was it yesterday that Thailand MotoGP was cancelled mm. there's lots of uh, difficulties I mean just logistical difficulties of organising yeah. a championship like this does that change your approach to the championship as a team manager I mean like does it make it more important to be leading the championship at any point? Does it make you ch uh, look at the end no, of the championship differently? Uh, no, not really. I think um, we are, I mean, assumption is always a dangerous uh, thing, but um, we are assuming that the 11 European rounds that are scheduled will all happen. We're here at the fifth round. We go to Most in Czech Republic in two weeks and um, the rest of the rounds in, you know, Magni Cour, you could argue France looks like a, difficult situation at the moment um but you know there's a level of confidence in france that the magni call will happen and uh, then we go to barcelona jerez portimao which look all okay so um yeah i think those 11 events will happen i think the question mark is over the argentina and the indonesian events for obvious reasons um but dawna's current approach is that they're hoping to make them happen um so let's see has it had cost implications the fact that uh, is it more expensive to plan for an uncertain calendar? Do you know what I mean? Or, or do you? Yeah, it is, and but the cost implications are more um, related to how events or lack of events affect your income. Yeah, because obviously sponsorship partners are now quite correctly looking at uh, cancelled events and the total number of events um, as a factor of their uh, investments and their return on those investments with the team. Um, such a crazy thing you know a few years ago that yeah. would have never have you know even you know one cancelled event because there's been a military coup or something and okay take it on the chin but um now with the pandemic it's uh you know we've got um 
uh, essentially, uh, you know, formulas in place to, you know, recalculate incomes depending on the number of events. And um, so that's really the risk rather than the expenditure is the uh, effect on partnership incomes. Um, but, you know, in fairness, most of our sponsors uh, and partners are very well balanced and very fair with regard to how they treat that. Um, and they understand that a large part of their return is, you know, the association with Yamaha, the credibility and the exposure that happens on social media and in the winter period testing, etc. not necessarily related simply to the live event. So, um, uh, yeah, there, there are far more complications and I'm sure we've had similar discussions with other team managers and team owners in MotoGP as well as Superbike. And, um, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, we're here to uh, do the very best job we can and the most professional job we can. And um, in a very tough situation where we completed only eight events last year, it's great to see World Superbike, from what I can see as a external fan, having made a really good step forward this year. You know, there's been, I think, the appreciation of the racing and the quality of the racing, um, the fact that uh, there's been four different race winners and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of excitement uh, seems to have sort of taken the uh, imagination of fans uh, a little bit more strongly than it maybe has in years past. Um, the fact that Top Wreckers, you know, decided on his own merits to stay in World Superbike for another two years um, and that a champion like Jonathan is uh, being challenged and still showing his own worth every single time he jumps on the bike. Um, it's a ser series for kind of real racers and they really are racing and um, uh, providing a, you know, a great show for the people who are tuning in. Like you say, you know, it has become a more exciting series, and Top Rack has been a lot, a big part of that. What, what has been the key for Top Rack's performance? Uh, I mean, has he outperformed your expectations uh, this year? Uh, maybe, maybe not outperformed this year, no. But uh, as a sort of progression from last year, um, if we compare Top Rack end of 2020. He's kind of a, you know, he's a small step ahead of there. If we compare him to start of 2020, even though he won the first race of the championship, um, as a professional, as an athlete, uh, he's in a completely different position, uh, his approach. But some of that is through his own efforts, but some of that is just through the natural process of being at home with the team, understanding um, the bike much better, and of course, technically, the bike being developed around him and what he requires to go fast and be consistent. Um, and the guys have done a super job um, at Yamaha's R&D facility in Milan, um, taking effectively the same bike, but with small adjustments, creating something that he can really use to advantage. Um, the interesting thing is, even though the bike has been developed to allow him to do that, it seems to suit the other riders very well as well. And uh, basically, the specification is the same across all the Yamahas. Can what has changed with the bike? Can you, can you say anything about that? Well, I mean, some the normal things you need to compete well, engine speed, yeah. uh, you know, and acceleration um, being one of the main factors. Uh, that's improved uh, over the winter, which has been a, a, a decent step. We don't find that we've got the deficit. We still have a speed deficit to the Ducati and to the Honda, but the deficit is not unmanageable uh, anymore. Um, and uh, if we do our job properly in terms of giving the rider grip and feel and what have you, the way in which he can, um, uh, and indeed Garrett is showing as well, you know, we don't really suffer in a straight line if they're coming off the corners as well as the R1 can. Um, 
and there's been uh, changes to uh, some, you know, on the parts that you are allowed to change, uh, rigidity and uh, geometry changes that have suited uh, top rack style and even right, even down to rider position changes and stuff, just small stuff. Um, there's no one, you know, silver bullet that's made a massive difference. Uh, it's understanding from a setting point of view um, and a base machine point of view what's been needed to uh, allow him to take another step forward. But a lot has come from the rider, you know, the bike, yeah. the bike has improved, but a lot has come from top rack uh, going into this year. What has changed with top rack? I mean, is it his training approach, is it his mental approach? Because as you said, like consistency is key. That's how Mar Marcus mm. won so many championships, mm. how Jonathan Ray's mm. won so many championships. And it seems to be that that's what top rack's found. Yeah. And uh, um, it's been a pleasure to see him kind of grow in that respect. He's more comfortable in his own skin with the team he's more used to being a rider who's now instead of being in a kind of challenger team like the Puchetti team being the guy that you know it's a it's a victory to kind of fight with Jonathan and just get beat at the end you know there's no expectation to win um but he's now grown into that uh, level of confidence where the expectation to do well and almost his ex his own personal kind of um not just expectation but sort of when you put all the pieces in place and you have the raw talent that he has, it becomes almost a sort of uh, a right to do well. And it becomes that mentality that, you know, third or fourth is acceptable, but effectively failure compared to what the total expectation could be. And, the, you know, the, the greatest sportsmen across all sports, including motorcycle racing, pretty much line up with this kind of feeling that they have almost a divine right to win and something's gone wrong if they finish third. Um, and, uh, you know, Top Rack's very humble, uh, very respectful of all his competitors, but he has a um, not only a determination to do well now, but a self-belief that's mat matching that and trusting more in the people around him and the team and the um, engineers to find the solutions that his lack of experience sometimes would find it difficult to uh, yeah. point but to point at and to define. But um his feedback because of his uh, talent and his feel on the bike is super accurate. And uh, the more the guys uh, work with him, the more they know the solution for a particular element of feedback. And it means that the process of getting the bike right means that hopefully if we do our job, it's kind of ready for qualifying, maybe to be at its best rather than maybe ready for race two on Sunday. Um, so it's a cumulative effect. And it's one that Jonathan's enjoyed with many, many years with the same people and the same crew and the same base machine. Um, and uh, okay, we're a long way behind Jonathan's uh, level of experience with his Kawasaki team. Um, but one full year together is a big big difference compared to a new project together does that also make you more optimistic going forward because you know you've got the same rider for two more years and uh, you know top rack is uh, i mean to an extent because he, he, certainly his english has also improved yes. he, it was yeah. and, and communication is absolutely key and mm. understanding what the rider means when he says something sure. um, um, uh, makes a difference so having two more years with the same rider, the same team, the same the same group, that's got to be uh, make things easier for you as well. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, he, he brought, or we employed Phil Marin, his crew chief from Puchetti, who I'd worked with before at Crescent, um, you know, back in the Eugene Laverty days uh, with us. So uh, we knew Phil well, and that was a natural fit. So uh, Phil now knows, again, much like Top Rack does, 
the Yamaha system, the strengths and weaknesses. Uh, you know, it's more easy to improve the bike when you really understand uh, the DNA of the bike uh, as a crew chief. Um, so certainly we'll keep the group together. Um, and, uh, you know, honestly, it's pride comes before a fall, you know, and I, I, we're not in a position where we're saying we have the best bike and the best rider and the best team. It's just, you know, we're keeping our feet on the ground and taking it race by race, session by session, um, and with the only target to do our best and to and to achieve the maximum potential. Um, so uh, you know we have, and just because, for example, Scott Redding's been you know a little bit off the ball the last couple of events for various reasons, uh, it wouldn't shock me if he won both races here this weekend. You know, so we've got to respect the level of the competitors, the efforts of. Uh, the factories, the fact that BMW are improving, Honda, uh, you know, they didn't come here for fun, unsponsored and with an HRC full factory effort, uh, they're here to, you know, achieve things. So um, they'll keep moving forward. So, um, yeah, we're not expecting to rock out every weekend and win the motorbike races. It doesn't really work like that. We're just expecting to do our best. And if we keep doing that, we, we hope to be part of the fight. Um, and, and that's all we can really do. Where do you see the... the, the technical rules are you happy with where they are at the moment or do you think they, they, they there are still issues well i mean have you ever seen better parity of performance than world <laughs> superbike ever no 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 it's, it's no longer the ducati cup it is you know we, we have a situation where every single motorcycle and indeed the privateer entry and supported team rather than official team motorcycles can win the races um and it's never been like that in World Superbike. You know, you get a lot of people perhaps harking back uh, to the golden era days of Carl and the boys and going to Brands Hatch with 100,000 people. And, uh, and it was great. But the races were won by half a lap uh, on many, many occasions. And we're just not seeing that now, whether it's as in MotoGP, whether it's qualifying, whether it's the races. Um, you know, in this championship, the only big manufacturer who has sports bike missing is Suzuki. Um, and we know from other series they have a competitive bike. Um, but, you know, it means that, you know, Yamaha, Honda, Kawasaki, BMW, Ducati all have a shot at winning the race when they turn up. Um, and I think that's the best it's been. So the question mark is, why is that? Well, a big factor has to be the technical regulation. And I personally believe that the uh, special nature of the bikes, let's say, has been retained enough that there's an interest in a super bike compared to a production bike. Um, and that uh, alongside that, the cost balance is somewhere close to being right. The challenge, as it sits now, is to retain that level of equal competition, continue to control and reduce cost, and fundamentally to balance the regulation with the national championships. Because I think if um, we can get back to a point where the Italian, French, and particularly the British and the US championships have the same technical regulation, it, even, and they're very, very close now. Um, in the UK, it's really only the uh, ECU differential. Uh, and in America, it's even closer. Um, so if, if over the next couple of years, that can be trimmed away so they become uniform, then there's a great opportunity uh, to do as we used to do as a team back in the day and not only enter as a wild card, but enter with the, as we used to do, the target to win. Um, and uh, that would be a great addition if that can happen in the near future. The difficulty, of course, is... Um, sorry, I'll make this the last question. No worries. Um, the difficulty is, of course, that um, back in the day, it was open tyre competition, for example. Yeah. Um, 
a lot here now. BSB, although BSB and uh, and, and World Superbikes both use Pirellis, sure. um, you've got different e- you've got different ECUs. Uh, I think. Off the top of my head, most of America, I think, uses a different a different tire manufacturer, but I'm not uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think the US guys run Dunlop. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so th- that means it makes it much more difficult to actually uh, enter because you've got this sponsorship commitment. You know, the, the, the yeah, these can, components. But you think that's a, that's oh that, that's fixable? Uh, yeah, I think so. And I think ultimately um, that, uh, for example, remove one brand of tire and do a couple of tests on the other brand. You know that the steps that Pirelli have made with their tyre consistency and durability and, you know, we're running tyres now that are doing 23 laps at Donington with unbelievable lap time consistency that sort of five years ago, the lap time was three seconds different at the end of the race. So, um, you know, there's nothing sort of, you know, the Moto America Yamaha and ours is almost exactly the same yeah. uh, and they run a different tyre, you know, so the, the, the bikes can perform on different tyres and yes, there'll always be commercial um uh, hurdles to overcome um, but I think the concept of national championships uh, being able to feed not only year by year with the odd rider into the world championship but during the season be able to sort of uh, uh, for the top riders to show their worth is, was always a good asset and it always brought the crowds along to support not only the riders that were uh, from their country at the race, but also the local heroes that were having, uh, you know, that were involved for that weekend, and that's something Superbike can offer that MotoGP can't because it, there, it is a production-based championship, and if a team has a good sponsorship and um, a good rider, they can create the bike. Uh, any the the BS, the BSB bike is the same bike as ours, you know, apart from the regulatory bits that make it different. So, um, you know, it's a. I think that would be a nice step, but irrespective of that, I think the tech regulation. You can only measure its value by the challenge in production racing is to achieve parity of performance or relative parity of performance uh, without harshly or unnecessarily penalizing any particular manufacturer. Um, And and I think we've achieved that. And um, that's really what's needed to create a championship. It's no point it being a Yamaha Cup, a Ducati Cup or whatever it is. Um, And uh, the grid you know, the ride is going to the grid knowing they've only got a chance to win if they're on a particular brand of motorcycles. So um, right now it opens out a lot more opportunity because of the parity of performance. And uh, honestly, I think they've done a great job over the last three, four years of refining that and getting it to where it is now. Isn't it a pain though, as a team manager, I mean, you want to win. And if there's all these other bikes uh, who are also good, um, Aren't they getting in your way? Aren't they making your job, your life much harder than <laughs> but it needs? Uh, yeah, but that's surely the idea. I mean, any uh, any sporting event's only worth winning if the competition is uh, uh, valid enough. And I think um, you know where it, where it sits right now. Uh, we'd rather be part of and fighting for the victory in something as credible and something as competitive as World Superbike currently is um, than have. Uh, a dominant uh, position in a championship that's got a very lo- short lifespan because of that reason. So, um, uh, you know, clearly the efforts Dawn has made, along with the FIM in MotoGP, have reflected the same concern that to keep the championship alive, it has to be a show with some un- unpredictability and with the opportunity for uh, manufacturers and sponsors and teams to recoup their investments by having a chance to be competitive and uh, uh, at the moment I think the two championships are in as good health as they've ever been save for the fact that sort of the commercial 
uh, investments into the external commercial investments because of various reasons, economical, pandemic-related, etc., are a bit tough. But as a sporting spectacle, uh, I think both championships are as good as they've ever been at the moment. Last question. Is Top going to be champion? <laughs> I, I would struggle to bet against him being cha world superbike champion. Whether it happens this year or over the next two years, I'm not <laughs> quite sure. But uh, um, it's... Uh, he, he has all the assets he needs, but you need a lot of luck. Uh, you need to make a lot of your own luck. Uh, and we need also, as I said before, to keep our feet on the ground and just focus on the process and uh, the next lap, the next race, and not get too carried away with ourselves. Really interesting stuff there with Paul Danning, David. What was your big takeaway from that? Um, uh, I uh, my big takeaway was how happy he was with the championship. That he felt that the championship was in a really, really good place, uh, and that I mean, I sat with him afterwards, chatting a little bit about you know the 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 difficulty which the championship has faced with you know the the, the impact that COVID has had because it's had a massive, it's, it's obviously had a massive impact, um, and it's also it, it's a shame that the COVID that the pandemic happened right now because. The situation inside superbikes is improving. You know, the, the field is more competitive. Um, yeah, you know, he wants to beat other people. He wants to he wants to earn a championship. Um, uh, and the impression he was just very he was very full of um, uh, of uh, praise for Toprak. Uh, he believes that that Toprak can be a champion. It's not easy. But it, but he thinks that Top Rack has um, has got you know the necessary skills uh, to do it. So, I think you know summing up the whole show really, Superbike is in a really really good place. And if you're not watching World Superbikes, you're missing out. Yeah, I'll definitely second that. But I thought one of the things that I found really interesting in our chats with people today was the one thing that kept being talked about was depth. We have depth in more or less BK now, and it's important that people don't hear that, but that they actually believe it. Because when you look at the races, yeah, Jonathan Ray is still at the front of the field. He's still able to win races. He should be able to. He's the best superbike rider we've ever seen. He's with probably the best team we've ever seen in World Superbikes. He's going to win races. Toprak's leading the championship as we sit right now. Gerloff's come in, made a really big impact. We've had Lowe's close to Jonathan Ray all the way through this season. We've had... The Ducati is able to win races, be competitive. We've had the BMW able to get themselves front row starts. We are in a really good position right now. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not automatic that Jonathan Ray, Ray either wins or finishes second or maybe on the podium. He's actually having to fight uh, and he's having to fight quite hard because there are, as you say, the depth of field it, it is a deeper field. Uh, it's actually getting more and more difficult to finish uh, on the podium. You know, you just being a little bit off now means finishing seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth that's a uh, a much more interesting challenge. It makes it more difficult and it makes it a more interesting series. Yeah, we've obviously held back this week's Paddock Pass podcast just that we were able to actually get you into the Superbike Paddock, Dave. But uh, we're going to have Gordo back on the show next week. Obviously, the MotoGP summer break is still going to be going on, but uh, we're going to have a Superbike show. We're going to have some Patreon shows as well over the course of the next couple of weeks. That's where we'll have the interviews with Jonathan Ray and Alex Lowe's. We'll play them into the regular Paddock Pass podcasts over the course of the next while as well. But uh, if you want to listen to the Patreon interviews, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast, and we'll be updating that with regular content. Obviously, enough during the summer break, Dave, we are giving yourself, Adam and Neil, a little bit of time off. So that's why the Patreon content has kind of taken a little bit of a step back the last couple of weeks. But it's been great having you in the World Superbike Paddock this weekend. Yeah, well, I've really enjoyed it, and uh, um, I hope to be back sooner. 
Well, hopefully so. And uh, from myself, Steve English, David Emmett, all of the team here on the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Rental Street. Big thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon and all of our listeners as well on your on your podcast platforms. If you have any feedback, drop us a comment at Paddock Pass Pod on Twitter. And if you have any questions, we'll make sure to get them answered. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Libertines. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. <laughs>